Well, let's pray as we come uh, to our passage. Father God, pray that you would speak to us uh, through your word. Father, pray that you'd help us not to harden our hearts as our fathers did during the rebellion, but that, Father, we would have soft hearts and open ears, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you remember last time, uh, we were looking at Hebrews 13, and we were looking at that chapter and what it meant for us to love one another. How do we uh, live in love? And what does that love look like? We talked about the shape of that love that loves uh, one another, that loves the stranger, that loves the poor and needy. And uh, we saw that the love that we have for one another or are to have for one another is very different from the love that the world around us has. And our passage this morning continues on with the idea of looking at what the shape of our love is to be like, how we are to love one another, how we are uh, to live out the gospel uh, in the way that we love one another and do what Jesus said and love God with all our hearts and love our neighbour as ourselves. And really this passage is just working out in practice what that love looks like. So we've got two headings this morning. The first one is bring to remembrance sacrifices of the past and we'll read verses seven, uh, seven and eight uh, together. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. They're told here three things really. They're told to recall their leaders. They're told to remember their leaders. Now the word is not the same there as it was for those people who were in prison in the earlier chapter. This is literally to bring to mind, to bring to remembrance. Don't forget if you like. There's a specific group in mind that they're to remember, those who spoke God's word to you. Not who speak, but who spoke. They're to remember their past leaders, those who first told them the gospel. Who first told you the gospel about Jesus? For me, it was a pastor called Stuart when I was seven. Uh, I didn't believe at the time, but I do remember hearing about Jesus and his death on the cross. And uh, I remembered hearing about the fact that my sins could be forgiven. I first uh, believed it a few years later when a man called Richard spoke God's word to me. It was a Tuesday night at a teens group at a church that I'd started going to. Uh, the passage that he was speaking on was, it's not the healthy, uh, but the sick who need a doctor. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And it really struck me in a way that it never had done before. And all of us here this morning who are believers will have stories like that. We can remember those preachers and leaders of the past. Now, many of them won't be the big names of the last 50 years. Many are just ordinary men and women getting on with the business of telling people the gospel. And that's how most people come to know Jesus. Do you notice that he doesn't say the apostles they're to remember? It's not like remember Peter or remember Paul. Actually, these, these leaders that they're to remember, they're nameless. Like the author of the book of Hebrews is nameless. And that should be an encouragement to us. Nameless people can make a huge difference in the kingdom. They always have done and they always will do. All we know about these leaders is that they spoke the word of God to these people. And what a great epitaph to have for them. No great monuments to their name, no books of the Bible named after them, but they spoke God's word and their legacy was the Hebrew Christians. Nameless, but not aimless. They preached the word of God to these people and they knew what they were doing as they did that. Now, two asides, if you'll permit me, I think you'll find them helpful uh, as we look at this subject. The first one is this is how leaders lead. 
They teach the word. They preach the word. That's why in passages in the Bible, it's the only skill listed uh, of qualifications of an elder that they're able to teach. This is how a leader exercises his authority. Sure, there are big decisions to be made about all sorts of things, buildings, constitutions, finances. But in the end, the primary role of a leader in church is to teach the word of God. That is how leaders lead in a church. They teach. And even in those other areas, we're to be taught by the word of God. The spirit of God transforms our mind by the word of God so that we will do the will of God in all things. So that is why leaders teach the word of God. That is the way the church is to grow. That is the way leaders are to lead. The second aside that I want to share with you is that the word of God is what we need to preach if we want to see conversions. That's why at our carol services, we have a talk on the Bible. That's why at Stirrup, we had preaching from the word of God. There's a widespread ignorance of the Bible outside of church, aren't there? And some people's answer to that is to stop preaching the Bible in evangelism. Friends, that is the last thing that we should do. If they don't know it, then we need to teach it to them, don't we? Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was at the FIC Leaders Conference and uh, had the opportunity to go along to the Don Carson uh, Seminar. And it was looking at defeater uh, beliefs, those beliefs that people have that defeat the gospel before we even really start telling them the gospel. And uh, as he was preaching, he went to Acts 17. And my heart, I must admit, slightly dropped. I thought, oh, I've heard this before. Don't uh, quote the Bible, just quote culture like Paul does. And he explained in the talk just how far the world's view of things differs from the Bible. But the application of it wasn't then to just quote other things. Actually, his application of it, which I was so glad about, was open up the Bible with people. If they're ignorant to that world, if their world is so different, then let's open up the word with them so they can see that other world, so that we can introduce them to that other world. And that's what these leaders had done with the Hebrews. They had opened up another world to the Hebrews. And the Hebrews were to remember that. Those leaders who had taught God's word to them and showed them how much better the Lord Jesus is than anyone or anything else. So they're to recall those leaders. But they're not just to recall and remember, they're to reflect on what's happened. We're told that they're to consider the outcome of their way of life. That's what it says in verses 7 and 8. That word outcome really means something like sum total. It's another clue that these people really have, have died. They're to consider the sum total of their life, what God did through them all the way through their life. Um, they're to think back to these past leaders' life and consider the sum total of what they did. And again, these are not the big names of the first century. These are ordinary Christians who just got on with preaching the word of God. But interestingly, it's not the preaching that they're to consider, but their way of life. If you're a believer here this morning, think of those people who first spoke the gospel to you. What was it in their way of life that, that seemed to appear? What characterised their life? What did they or do they live for? It's worth taking some time to be reflective about this. Think about that person, those people who shared the gospel with you. Now, because we live in a fallen world, it might be that those people are no longer walking with Jesus. But if that's true, then think about other leaders at the time. Or at least think about how they used to live at the time. Their lifestyle is an outworking of the gospel they believe. You see, in the Bible, there is a godliness that goes along with the gospel. There is a way of life that fits the way of life, if you like. 
What is it about their life that was so powerful? You see, this is why so often the Billy Grahams and the Louis Palau's of this world, in the big scheme of things, are not so powerful, are not so important, don't see so many conversions of people coming into the kingdom. Because if you look at that man visiting just for a few days, you see nothing of their way of life. There's nothing to learn from them, again, as we take our first steps as Christians. The wonderful thing about the gospel and the way that God has set up this world in the preaching of the gospel is that the gospel comes embodied to us in people. God could speak the gospel message on the winds, couldn't he? He could write it in the sky. But he chooses people, and this is partly why, so that we can see how the gospel works out in their life. So Paul can write to Timothy on the back of your notice sheet, 2 Timothy 3, uh, 10 and 11. You, however, followed my teaching. Great, I think we're comfortable with that. But he goes on, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and suffering. It wasn't just Paul's teaching that Timothy had experienced. It was his way of life. Because in his life, he had lived out the word of God. So for all that we said that about leaders leading by teaching the word of God, part of the way that leaders teach the word of God is in their way of life. They teach the outcome of the gospel and they're to think this through as they think about their lives. And then finally, they're to recall, um, they're to reflect and then finally they're to reproduce. They, this is why they are to be reflective about this. They need to consider what it is about their lifestyle that's worth copying. See, we're called to make disciples of Jesus, aren't we? Not clones of ourselves or others. All human leaders are sinners. There will be things in our lives that we're not to copy, in others' lives that we're not to copy. But lives lived in obedience to the gospel in a, in a big way are a challenge to us. I want to encourage us to read the lives of Christians of the past. Look at the lives of Christians of a bygone age. See the sacrifices that they made for the gospel. Let the challenges sink in. They're often a cure to the age of apathy that we live in, uh, where that is normal. Let their enthusiasm for the gospel rebuke you and wake you up. Having said that, as you read biographies of Christians in days gone by, beware of books that tell you one side of the story. Or if you consider people uh, who have lived out the gospel before us, uh, beware of people who've only let you see part of their life. So, for example, Wesley may have arisen at stupid o'clock to pray, but the bit that's normally missed out is that he was normally in bed by eight o'clock. He also had the world as his parish, but it's also widely considered that he neglected his duties to his wife and children. You see, we need to be reflective uh, about these lives, but we need to be challenged by what is worth copying. So don't become a clone. Don't try and live in another century. But do remember that there is a radicalness to the gospel and a radicalness to gospel living that sometimes we lose sight of. You might think all this belongs to a bygone age, but the author pulls us up straight in verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Times may have changed, he's saying, but Jesus has not changed. We cannot write this off as something as the past. Jesus is still the same. So it's not so much here a theological statement about the unchanging nature of Christ, though that is true. Instead, it's a reminder to the Hebrews and to us that things are not so different from how they used to be, as sometimes we're tempted to think. We're tempted to think back to the good old days, especially if we're of a certain age, especially Christianly speaking. 
you know, I remember when there were so many people packed into the building, or I remember when we used to have missions and this used to happen. But times change, and we change too. Our enthusiasm wanes, our zeal abates, our confidence in the word of God begins to fade, individually but also collectively too. We make excuses, or oh, it's not like it used to be. That's true, but we forget one incredibly important truth. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. Jesus has not changed. His power has not waned. His truth has not changed. His kingdom has not failed. We look back with the Hebrews and we think that was another age, but it wasn't really. We're in the same age. The same uh, gospel is true now. The age of the gospel is still here. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. We are to remember the past, but not to be nostalgic, instead to be proactive. I mean, do you think that people are any worse sinners today than they were in Jesus' day? Do you think the gospel is any less powerful than it was 50 years ago? Do you think living radically for the gospel is no longer possible in the 21st century? No way. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. So remember the leaders of the past, not to despair, but to duplicate their way of life, a life fitting to the gospel. But what does that life look like? Well, secondly, they're to bear reproach as living sacrifices. Bear reproach as living sacrifices. And really, there's three parts to this. Firstly, they're not to go back to the Old Testament sacrifices. Have a look at verses 9 to 11. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the, hearts to be, for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the, brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. You see, we've been seeing all the way book, uh, through the book, haven't we, that people were trying to get these Hebrew Christians back into first century Judaism. They wanted them to go back to the Old Testament sacrificial system and the whole of the Mosaic law. We've seen this all the way through the letter. Here it's described as a diverse and strange teaching. Now, it could be more general. I mean, it's never good, is it, to be led astray by any kind of false teaching. But it seems here that this particular one is in mind. And to get our heads around this, we need to understand something about how sacrifices functioned under the Old Testament law. There was not just one type of sacrifice in the Old Testament. There are at least five distinctly different ones. Some of those sacrifices were burnt up completely, like burnt offerings. Some of them a portion was burnt and the rest was given to the priests to eat, like a grain offering. And others, like the peace offering, were shared between the priest and the bringer of the offering. Eating the sacrifice there was part of the worship to God. So eating a sacrifice as a priest or as a common worshipper, he's saying, is no longer of any benefit. We are not strengthened by food offered on an altar. Instead, we're strengthened by grace. What does that mean? Well, it means that God's unmerited favour upon us strengthens us. It's a grace, it's a gift from God, and we grasp hold of it by faith. And it's as we understand that God is for us and not against us, that we have got God's favour upon us. We can never merit his favour, as this strange, diverse teaching seem to be saying, 
We can never do enough animal sacrifices to please him. No, instead, it's God's grace that strengthens us. It's understanding that it's not merited, that it's not deserved, that actually it's a gift from God. And that strengthens us far more than any food that we could eat from an altar. It strengthens our hearts rather than our bodies. It keeps us going and keeps us trusting as we grasp hold of the fact that we are saved by grace. So actually, we have something greater than the altar that the priests had. We have Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. And just as parts of the sin offering and the sacrifice of atonement on the Day of Atonement were burnt outside the camp, so Jesus suffered outside the camp. And because of that, we're told not to go back to Old uh, Testament sacrifices, but instead to actually look at the New Testament and the sacrifices that we find there. In fact, we have a better sacrifice than the ones that they had in the Old Testament. Consider Christ's sacrifice. Have a look at verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So just as the Old Testament sacrifices were there to provide blood for cleansing from sin, so Jesus' blood provides us with cleansing from sin. His blood sanctifies his people. It sets us apart as holy. Not that it magically makes us perfect or sinless, but it cleanses the stains of the past and it begins the process of changing us from within. More of that in a moment. But the big point here is that Jesus suffered outside the gate. That is outside the gate of Jerusalem. The place where Jesus was crucified was outside the city. And the sin offering and the atonement offering were taken out of the camp to be burnt uh, in offering. They were taken out because they symbolised sin and uncleanness that was to be taken out from among them. But remember that image of outside also through the Bible has this idea of something unclean. In other places, it's where the dogs lived. It's where the lepers live. It's, it's something outside. So Jesus' sacrifice for sin was outside the city. He died the death of an outsider. He died the death of a criminal. So abhorrent and traumatising was the sight of someone being crucified that even the brutal Romans had the sense to do it outside the city. But the author's point is this. Jesus, by doing so, bore reproach. He suffered an outsider's shameful death. Let me put it this way. He didn't die after a week-long party, like Errol Flynn did. He didn't go down in a blaze of glory like Jesse James. He didn't die a hero of his people like William Wallace. How did Jesus die? He died rejected by his people, abandoned by his friends, shunned by society. The kindest, most loving man who ever lived, our God and Saviour, basically died alone, branded a failure and a reject by those around him. And yet he chose to do this. He chose to bear the scorn and rejection as he bore his cross. And now we are called to do the same. Our lives are to become sacrifices too. And that too involves bearing reproach. Have a look at verses 13 and 14. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. The verses here don't talk about his death outside the gate. Interestingly, they talk about his suffering. He left us this as an example. Not to die the death he did for sin, we could never do that. But to suffer as an outsider, as he did. 
You see, the gospel will not make us popular. There has never been a time, really, when it ever has done. Christians have always been, to some degree, outsiders. The gospel separates from us from our peers. We're set apart now, as we saw earlier, so we cannot go along with all that they do. We no longer live for what they live for. We live for a city that is to come, not for the city that we have now. And so we face sidelining, the ridicule, the scorn, the pressure to conform. Whenever we don't conform, it makes people uncomfortable. Why can't they just be normal and get on with it like everybody else? So to become a Christian is always to some extent to be a reject from society. And the author says, that's okay. Keep on being different. Stick to your guns. Don't give in to the pressure to conform, to go back to the way that you were. Why? Because Jesus suffered as an outsider too. He was a reject. He suffered just as you do, outside the gate, outside the camp. He lived for the joy set before him, rather than the fleeting friendships of man. Two quick points, though, with that. That's not to say that we aim to become outsiders. We don't try and be weird for weird's sake. You know, grab your socks, grab your sandals, everything in the Christian subculture to try and make people uh, uncomfortable. You know, lock up your schlur, here I come. But it does mean that we should expect to be made outsiders by those around us. But there's nothing virtuous about deliberately living in a Christian subculture that excludes other people. Actually, the whole point of this is that we're to welcome people in, especially outsiders. We're to go out of the city gate, to bear reproach, yes, but remember that is where the unclean live, the social outcasts of society were there. And isn't that what Jesus modelled through his life? Hanging around those that society had rejected, showing compassion to those who had never seen mercy. So we live with the rejection from being in the in-crowd in the city, because really it's not our city anyway. We belong to Zion, the heavenly city where God dwells. But how are we to live outside the city gate? What does it look like? Is it that we go around moping? Is it that we go around complaining as we bear this reproach? No, verse 15 tells us we're to be overflowing with praise. Have a look at verse 15. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Through the suffering Christ, in a world of suffering and rejection, we're to be overflowing with praise to God. Now, originally I had full of praise for God, but the point here is that it's so overflowing that it comes out of our lips. Now, that doesn't mean we go around constantly singing. That would be quite cool, personally. I, I'd always secretly, I think, really wanted to live in a musical. But what it's talking about here, that phrase, sacrifice of praise, is the Greek translation of what we have in our Bibles as a thanks offering or a thanksgiving offering. It's another one of those five types of offering that you could give. It was the offering that you brought to God to give thanks for what he had done for you. Not to earn his favour, but because his favour had been poured out on us. And it matches exactly what we saw at the end of, 12, of, of chapter 12, that the appropriate worship of God is thankfulness to him for all that he has done. Worship is not bringing things to God, it's receiving from God and responding appropriately. And that we do as we acknowledge his name, as we offer the fruit of our lips to him in response of all that he has done. Now that might be in song, 
as we sing as at home or on Sundays. But I don't think that's specifically in mind here. You see, that phrase there is a quote from Hosea 14, uh, verse 2. And in the context of that, it's about people stopping their waywardness and going back to God, offering the fruit of their lips. So Hosea 14, verse 2, I've got it on the back of your notice sheets. Um, I'll just put it in the NIV because it's a little bit clearer. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. You see, really what it's talking about there, acknowledging his name, is acknowledging his gracious, forgiving character. It's turning to him in repentance, as the author has been calling them all the way through the letter. They're to speak words of praise to God in the way that they speak to one another, not just in the songs, but in their conversation. As they talk about God, they're to be overflowing with praise for all that he has done. So singing doesn't exhaust it. Actually, it's to flow into our conversations as well. And not just into our conversations, actually, there are other applications of what this looks like on the ground. Two things we see there in verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Actually, what does it look like in the day to day apart from speaking God's praise? It means doing good and sharing what you have. In the end, really, this love that we're seeing, it's, it's the Christian community showing practical love to one another. Feeding the hungry, giving to the needy, doing good to all. In one sense, this is what true worship looks like. Lives poured out in service to God by serving our neighbours and our brothers and sisters. We show mercy in thankfulness for God's mercy. As Romans 12 verse 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You see, the sacrifices we're to offer are ourselves. Living sacrifices, pouring out our lives for one another. Why are we to do this? Because it's pleasing to God. Not for kudos, not for status, not for the good feeling it gives us, but for God seeking to please him as our master. And this is what real love looks like. This is the shape of gospel love. Actually, as we care and love one another. But to finish, is this the love that we have for one another? Is this the love that shows itself in our lives? When people look back on our lives as leaders of the past and Christians of the past, will they see that love that overflows to others? So is this what our love looks like? Is it gospel shaped or is it shaped like the world around us? Well, let's pray that God would give us the strength, the energy and the love to love one another in such a practical way, to love one another in such a caring way. And pray that we too would be living sacrifices, pouring out our lives for one another in service to God, in thankfulness for all that he's done.